The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. I think we're continuing our series in the Psalms. These are the Hallel Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms, that begin and end with this Hebrew word, Hallelujah. Which means, praise the Lord. This one's probably one we could memorize. It's two verses, and it goes like this. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And we've talked about um, how it's really a healthy thing to praise the Lord. Last week we talked about it's good and good, it's fitting, it's, uh, it's, the, it's right, it's comely. It's, this is what the righteous naturally want to do. We live in a world where if you listen to conversations, all the time we're either praising things or we're complaining about things. So the things that we like, we tell other people about. The things that we don't like, you know, and, and they tend to get posted both ways. And, um, and it's interesting right now, if you think about you know, just an area of something that's getting a lot of praise right now. Who was, who's somebody who's getting a lot of praise right now? Answer, Tom Cruise. There's a lot of articles about Tom. I mean, he's 61 years old. He, can, he still does his own stunts. He directs his movies. He cares about the least people on the set. He'll even help people practice their lines and go over them with them. And the hot mic from Steven Spielberg that praises him that was caught as he was, there was some awards in it, and it said, you know, this was during COVID when movies were just about, the theaters were about to shut down, and out comes the movie Maverick, saves the movie theaters, and Spielberg captures it with, you saved Hollywood's butt. I will not use the A word that he used, but, um, and everybody heard that, right? And everybody loves what Tom Cruise has done. And you think about that, what is praise? We're called to praise the Lord. Praise is just giving somebody the credit or honor they deserve. And we certainly, we have all kinds of laws when people steal something that's yours, right? We call that either like plagiarism or in business if, you know, people will sign, you know, certain things. And if people steal your, your uh, wisdom and your skill and they've committed themselves to not do that and then they violate those rights, <clears throat> they can be sued. Well, God is calling us to praise him. And the answer that, that begs the question is why? Because this text just simply has a call and a cause. The call is verse one and the cause is verse two. The call is to everybody, all the nations, all peoples. And then the, the cause is who God is. Great is his steadfast love. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And you think about it, why does God deserve praise? And you think, well, if, if God doesn't exist, what do you have? Nothing. 
You have nothing without him. You don't even have the, the brain to think. You, everything is a gift from him. And so when you think of, you know, Spielberg saying, you know, you saved Hollywood's butt. He has saved us in a much bigger way than anything like that. And yet we live in a world that kind of the, the Henry, Ernest Henry's, Henley's Invictus poem from 1888, he has this long poem and he, he takes a lot of actually scriptural ideas and turns it into a complete hymn about self. And we live in, in a day and an age where it's the self-made man, the unconquerable soul. And you probably remember the end of the, the ver of the poem, which says, I'm the master of my fate and I'm the captain of my soul. And it's full of this autonomy of self-ruling. And yet the Bible just wants to make clear to us things like this. It's God who gives to all mankind life and breadth and everything. In him we live and move and have our being. And so to assert this idea that, no, God doesn't need to be really thanked or praised. We don't need to give him the credit that he deserves. It reminds me of the story I came across just reading this week of Van, Van Til was in a, he was a professor of apologetics at Westminster Seminary. He's on a train and he's sitting in a railway carriage and he sees a little girl on the train sitting on the lap of her daddy and she's slapping him in the face. And he writes and says, if the daddy had not held her up on his lap, she wouldn't have been able to slap him. And this is what Christopher Watkin in his, in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, says about this. He says, the relationship of this girl to her father is like that of Invictus to God. The poem's very refusal of its creator is contingent on his grace. We might think of the little girl supported on the paternal knee, her defiant head held, held high, shouting, I'm my own unconquerable support. I hold myself up no matter what. The sentiment is undoubtedly stirring and inspirational, but it bears precious little relation to the physics of the situation. The little girl needs to experience experience what Paul Ricoeur calls the second Copernican revolution, when the self loses its pretensions to be its own creator. And so we're reminded this morning that we have a cause and we have a call. We are to praise the Lord. That's what we are called to do, and we're, 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 we qualify. Who is to do it? Well, it's all the people groups, all the nations. And why are we to do it? Because of his hesed love, his his steadfast love and the faithfulness that endures forever. Now, we, we've been listing in the bulletin these first three questions, and you might want to take a look at your bulletin just to look at those first three questions of reflection. And we've been asking each week, what is the chief end of man? And I'll ask it again. What is the chief end of man? You guys can answer with me. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's do the second one. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Let's answer that together. The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So the only way that we know how to glorify him, we don't come up with this in our own imagination. It's the word of God is what teaches us it's the only rule for faith and practice. Then the next question, let's answer this one. What do the principles principally teach? 
Answer, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. I actually think that third question is, is a great question to ask whenever you're reading the Bible. So as you look at Psalm 117, you just apply question three. What, it, what, what am I to believe concerning God in Psalm 117, and what duty does God require of me, of man? Well, the duty that he requires of us, I always like to figure that out first. You know, what's the imperative and then the why? But, um, and then we're, we're told, you know, in this text, we're, that those are the very two things of the text, is we're told that we are to, what we're to believe about him is that our God is a God of steadfast love toward us and his faithfulness endures forever. And so let's just kind of break that down a little bit. Let's think about this text a little deeper. The very word here that says great is his steadfast love for us is probably not a great translation. The word actually means, it's this word gibor or gibar in Hebrew, and it means prevails. It means powerful, it means mighty, it prevails over sin, over Satan, over death, over hell. For mighty is his mercy towards us would be a better translation. And what we're seeing here in this psalm is this is classic. In the psalms, you get so much of Hebrew parallelism. You'll get one line is repeated in the second line with just very slight very, uh, variation or alteration in meaning. And so, and often they mean the same thing. So you could actually say the love of God endures forever and the faithfulness of God prevails. That's also true. It's bringing these two truths together very closely. And I like what James Boyce says about this. He says, it is in fact because God is the faithful God who does not lie in his words or vary in his commitments that his love prevails. And, that, and it is because his love does not vary that he can be trusted. So if God wasn't faithful and, and it doesn't change, then we wouldn't have any confidence in his steadfast love. But we notice that these two words, they go hand in hand. They're like brother and sister. They're from the same family. They travel together. They spend lots of time together. And you'll notice that, you know, just, in, I'll read a couple of these call to worships that are very, probably f f very familiar to us. And it has these same two words, and it's these two words in Hebrew, hesed and emet. Steadfast love and faithfulness, and the word faithfulness can really mean truth. Uh, and so these two words go hand in hand. Just be reminded of some of these called to worship. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. You see the brother and sister traveling together? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, your hesed and your emit. And interestingly, the, the, the word emit is this Hebrew word for truth. And what's interesting about that word is it takes the very first word of the Hebrew alphabet, which is olive, and the last word, which is tav, and then the very middle of the Hebrew alphabet is the Hebrew word letter M. It's the, those are the three free words in Hebrew, emet. And that's where we get, it's the, it's, the, it's the idea is that you need the whole picture. 
You need the beginning and you need the end and you need the, it's the very middle and it's the two ending words and it's very intentional that our God is a God of truth. He's a God of faithfulness. Remember this call to worship? I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Some of you know that praise chorus. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you'll establish your faithfulness. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Here's another one. To sing praise to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Here's another one. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I'll give thanks, O Lord, among the peoples. I'll sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. As for me, O Lord, and here's another one. You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Why? For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. The reason you need God's hesed and you need his emmet, you need his faithfulness and his steadfast love is because we find ourselves like the psalmist, where iniquities overtake us and we can't see. And then we wonder, does God really love me? I'm a sinner. Has God changed? God hasn't changed. You see, God is faithful, and he's to be praised for his faithfulness. And if you think about God's, the reason that his steadfast love does not change, let's think about this. His truth doesn't change because his purposes do not change. God's purposes do not change because his ways do not change. His ways do not change because his character does not change. His character doesn't change because God's life does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the eternal king. He's the immortal God who cannot die. He's from all eternity. He's immortal and he's immutable. And so you have a rock that does not change. And God's not a man that he should lie. That's what we do or a son of man, that he should change his mind. What he has said, will he not do it? Or what he has spoken, will he not fulfill it? And God has made some amazing promises. And much of the Bible goes back to two bedrock promises. It's the promise he made to Abraham, and it's the promise that he made to David. And he swears both times with these promises that he will be faithful to his promise. And if you think about the context in chapter 11 of Genesis, going back early in the Bible, man decided he'd build a tower of Babel. And he said, come, let's make a name for ourselves and we'll build a highway to the sky. Aren't we great? Let's do this. And we'll not give God any credit. We'll let God, don't give God any glory. And if you noticed, Jesus has been set aside He's not somebody that is meant to be in the picture. Unless you saw yesterday the Washington Post article of the two businesses and you have a, a, a couple that's, they're, they're gay and they're married and then you have a conservative Christian who gets caught on video throwing a rat over on this guy's business, taking a picture of it and then reporting this guy for the rats on his property. Way to go, Christians. Um, the Christians just looked horrible in this article and that's often how Christians are portrayed, as we're the people throwing rats on uh, making others look bad and reporting it. 
Um, terrible. Not good press. Um, that's often what happens. But in, in, that's an aside. Jesus gets minimalized. You're not hearing praise of Jesus, and yet he gets all the glory. And at the Tower of Babel, as man is saying, no, it's Invictus. We will do it ourselves. We're the master of our, of our uh, you know, we're going to build this city to the sky. And what does God do? He frustrates their plans. And he, diverses, he, di- he creates the diversities by different languages. And then they're spread through all the, the earth because they're confused and they don't understand each other. Because God has a plan. And God's plan is to bring us back to the garden. He's got to fix the problem. And to get us back into Eden and back into paradise, he's going to make for himself a people out of every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people. But he's going to start with one nation. And he's going to start with these promises that he makes to Abraham, who at the time is a pagan false worshiper. And he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What a great promise. And so God is promising to bless Abraham and to bless all the families of the earth through his offspring. And we see that the promise keeps getting repeated throughout the old the, uh, Hebrew scriptures. God keeps repeating this to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel as a nation. And Israel was to be a light to the nations. And, to, and that was her calling, like Jonah's calling was, was Jonah was to go and to give the message so that other nations would come to know Yahweh and would repent. But, but you know, and as we talked about Jonah, and we'll be talking about him a lot next week during Vacation Bible School, and um, Jonah had a problem. And we talked about how all Israel would have seen itself rebuked in him. That they all saw that we are just like Jonah. We really don't love these other nations. We want to keep this good news to ourselves. And we think we're the ones that are worthy of it, but nobody else is. And yet, who's given more grace than anybody else in the book of Jonah? Jonah. Who shows the least amount of grace in the whole book of Jonah? Jonah. (laughs) Everybody repents in the book of Jonah, but Jonah. And so we see that God has a, has a plan, and his plan is being thwarted by the very people that he started with to save. But he's going to bring this remnant down to a remnant of one, and he's going to raise up a Jew named Jesus who's going to come and do everything that Israel was supposed to do. But what we see here in this call to worship is this call to worship in Psalm 117.1 isn't just to Israel. It isn't just to the Jews, it's to all the nations and all peoples. But then you get this really interesting word, us, in verse 2. And then you got to really start wrestling with, great is his steadfast love toward us. Who's the us? I mean, there's something, you know, us is Israel. They're God's people. They're the holy nation. They're the royal peace priesthood. They're the people of his own possession. They're the people being called specifically to uh, celebrate and to praise him. And yet we see in the New Testament, though, the love language of God, his electing covenant love isn't just for Israel. 
the language is now used by the apostles Paul and Peter and, and the uh, other apostles, we see that the, that the nations or the Gentiles, and this word uh, nations is this Hebrew word goyim or in the New Testament would be the word ethne. And it means, it doesn't just mean, okay, America or China um, because there's, there's 60 different people groups in China. There's lots of nations in America. We've got a Navajo nation, right? We've got a Cherokee nation. We've got lots of peoples that are, you know, you get certain cities and they have big pockets of people that are from different nations and, and they're ethnic linguistic people groups. So don't just think political countries. You would be missing the point. That's not what the, you would be missing what God's point is. The Gentiles, though, the nations are being commanded to praise him in the New Testament, but they are given the very same language about them that was given to Israel. All of a sudden now, you, you, when you get to 1 Peter 2, all of a sudden he's calling the church, which was mainly Gentiles, he's calling them a people of his own possession. He's calling them a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The very special language that was the us language for Israel is now for the church. And what we see is God's making one people. And he's bringing them together shoulder to shoulder that all the peoples would praise him. And so the us is now all of God's people, Jews and Gentiles. It would be God's elect people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And so what we see is that God is on a mission. And this very middle of the Bible is opening up, up for us of what God is doing. He wants all the nations to praise him. And he wants them to praise him for his steadfast love and his faithfulness, that he's making a promise to all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we see that Israel failed in that promise. But God said, out of Egypt, I called my son. And we realize he's not just referring to Israel back in Exodus. He has, a, out of Egypt, he's calling his son Jesus. And he raises up Jesus. And Jesus, by his blood, is going to ransom a people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9. That's what God is doing in this world, is he's making a people for himself. And he says about Israel in Isaiah 49, he was to use them. You're my servant Israel in whom I'll be glorified. But I've said I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord said, he who formed me from his womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. It's interesting. The very servant Israel has failed, but now he's raising up another servant. And he uses the word servant now to refer to the Messiah. And he's going to bring this Israel of one, this remnant, and he's going to bring Israel back to him. He says that I might be honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And this is what God says. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant, referring to a Messiah, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the, the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, it wasn't, God, it wasn't glorious enough for God just to win one people to himself. But he raises up another Israel, the remnant of one. He raises up Jesus that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. 
And so when the Bible was, or when the, in Genesis, when the word is given to, to Abraham, this is what Paul says in the New Testament. Know then it is those who are faith that are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles or the nations by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Well, how's that? Well, he did it by Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And then we're told that the, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the nations, or the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then he says this, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. And this is what I mean, he says. The law which came 430 years after that does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise avoid. That the very promise made to Abraham is still in effect today. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so we see that God is fulfilling this very promise to show his hesed love and his emit, his faithfulness, forever to all the generations and to all the peoples. And so this very call is, is for us is to get us thinking about missions. Are all the nations praising him? Are all the people groups of the world praising him now? And if not, then what are we to do about that? How, how can they hear unless someone is sent to them, and unless the preacher will come and proclaim the gospel? And so the, the mandate of the New Testament at the end of the Gospels, after Christ has been raised, is go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, of all ethnicities. And he says the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. And so it's all these people groups. And there's a lot of people groups that still don't have a completed copy of the scriptures in their language. Thousands. I love what Spurgeon said in his Treasury of David. He just said, in commenting on this verse, verse 1, he says, the nations were to be his people. He would call them a people who were not a people, and her beloved that was not, that was not beloved. But we know and believe that no, no one tribe of man or men shall be unrepresented in the universal song, which shall ascend unto the Lord of all. Nobody's going to be unrepresented. All the people groups will be there. And so we're living in an interesting time where some of the, na the nations, you know, like you think, oh, well, England, let's go reach England. Well, there's more Muslims in England than Presbyterians in Scotland. So when you're reaching nations, you're reaching more Muslims in England than you are Presbyterians in Scotland. You see, there's been this great change of, of moving and, and a melting pot, and you have more Anglicans in Nigeria than in England and America put together, and they actually believe the Bible. We're seeing God doing things in Africa and South America and Asia that he's not doing in Europe and America. But we know that 
the whole point of, of missions, where John Piper has been beating this drum for years and years, the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. And for them to try to find their gladness somewhere else will lead to idolatry. It is not going to satisfy you. It's not going to save you. It's not going to rescue you. And so the Bible relentlessly will refer to the things of idols as things that are nothing. They're just a, they're a vapor. They're vanity. They, they, they don't offer anything of substance. And so the question, you know, in closing this morning, I say, okay, where's Jesus in Psalm 117? Well, if you take these very two terms of steadfast love and faithfulness, and I said they're like brother and sister, and they travel together, they always show up together. Well, what would be the New Testament equivalents? And it would be these two terms of charis and aletheia. Interesting, we have the two names in our youth group. <laughs> but charis is the word for grace, aletheia is the word for truth. That would be where you'd get hesed, and emit, now you have the same two terms being used again in the New Testament, and we get to this Gospel of John, and we're told about Jesus as John presents him to us, and he tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, all the promises of God are yes and amen. But certainly this idea of steadfast love and faithfulness is Jesus is the one who is full of grace, full of truth, and he's the one who's going to, to experience the costly grace for us. You see, the Bible tells us when, when God appears to Moses and he covers him in the cleft of the rock and he proclaims who he is, you have this great declaration about our God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, bounding in loving kindness, showing mercy to thousands, but by no means leaving the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents, the third and fourth generation. And you get this juxtaposition of forgiveness and justice. And so when you get to the New Testament, you see that Jesus is both. Jesus is going to be the one who is going to be faithful for us, and, he, and God is able to be fully just and satisfy the truth. And the truth is the soul that sins shall die. We deserve to be punished for our sins, and, and sin brings, brings death and, and brings punishment because of our sin. And yet Jesus has stood in our place, gone to a cross, bore our sins, and bore the wrath of God for us. Christopher Walken puts it like this. The love and faithfulness of the Old Testament are recast as the grace, the charis, and the truth, the aletheia, of which Christ is the fullness. We now know that love and faithfulness have met in Christ. And so put your rest in him this morning as you come to the table and praise him, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for mighty is his steadfast love towards us and his faithfulness endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you deserve the glory, the credit, all the credit, for we have done nothing to merit salvation, 
All we have done is merit judgment for ourselves. For Lord, we are undone. We see in ourselves, Lord, the, the tendency to exalt ourselves, to excuse ourselves, and to minimize you and to make much of self. Lord, we ask that you would flip that and that you would become greater we would become less and that we would repent of all of our works and all of our doing, trying to earn a righteousness, to earn forgiveness. Lord, we can't. And so we come today afresh through the blood of Jesus, recognizing that he has lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. Lord, we thank you that we are not our own. We thank you that you have purchased us and that you have created us and you're the very one who sustains us this very moment. Meet us now as we come to your table. We pray that you would be our all in all. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.